Well, we are continuing on our series from Hebrews today. Um, It's been a, a great reminder of the reasons that we can trust Jesus and continue to put our faith in him and continue to follow him. It was originally written to people who were under immense persecution. The Hebrews uh, congregations to which this were written, they were facing public insults and humiliation. They were being dragged off to prison, some of them, and some of them had had their property confiscated. In other words, their whole daily lives were under threat. And so some of them had been slipping away from Jesus and slipping away from the church and had gone back to Judaism. So this letter addresses why Jesus is worth it, worth it, worth us pursuing him, worth us keeping on following him no matter what comes. And so some of the persuasive arguments that we've already looked at say that Jesus is greater than angels. In fact, he's the son of God who created the universe. That Jesus' sacrifice for sins is greater than anything in the sacrificial system or the sacrifice of animals because he died once for all people. And that he is worthy of greater honour than Moses because he came as the builder of the house of all of God's people and that he invites us into a rest, an eternal rest, that we can begin to experience now. We have a wonderful saviour. Well, today we're going to explore some of the ways that Jesus, in his humanity, is uh, identifying with us and that we can follow him because we know how well he understands who we are and what the human condition is. On earth he was continually surrounded by crowds and he invited the crowds in. He never um, chased them away or said, no, I'm too busy or I'm too tired. They came in around him, they crowded around him, they touched him, they knew that he had um, power for healing and uh, often just touching Jesus meant that people were healed. But Jesus just welcomed the press of humanity around him because he created us, because he loves us, because he identifies with us. So as we go on to um, see what Hebrews has to say for us, just a reminder, look at these wonderful words. Both the one who makes people holy, which is Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Well, we're going to start at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So Jesus is our great high priest. And he has ascended into heaven. He sits now at the right hand of God, where he continues to mediate for us as a priest would. And he continues to pray for us as the priests did. Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. 
So the uh, original Hebrews were being encouraged. Hold on. Hold on. And there are plenty of times in our life where we need to hold on too. You don't have to be a Christian very long before you realise that it actually seems easier to slip back into old habits or harder to seek God's guidance or to do what we know he's asking us to do. And so often we're faced with this choice about continuing to follow Jesus faithfully or not. And today, as we go through some of the arguments that uh, the writer to the Hebrews has for us, I want you to think about whether there is some obstacle right now between you and God, some check in your spirit, some fear, uh, possibly some anger or disappointment with God. Because God has an answer for all of that. But we have to be prepared to just face what's going on inside of us uh, honestly. Okay, so Jesus claims a lot about himself. He claims to be the truth. We live in a society that tells us that there are all sorts of truth and all of them are okay because they all lead to the same destination. But Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and the only way to God as our Father. The only way. Actually, no other religion claims to have that intimate relationship with God as Father that we can have. When Jesus prayed to God, he used the word Abba, which means Daddy in Aramaic. God is not just Almighty God to us, our Creator. He's our Heavenly Father and we can know him well enough to call him Daddy, Daddy God. So Jesus is much more than just that concept of truth, of course. He's the flesh and blood embodiment of truth who empathises with us because he's a human being. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jesus has been tempted in every way. But he kept talking to the Father and deciding that he would follow the Father's will. And so he didn't sin. Shortly after Jesus was baptised, so right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Father sent Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days. And for 40 days he didn't eat or drink. The The devil recognised that as an opportune time. So he comes along and he says, 40 days, that's massive. Well done, Jesus. God must be really pleased with you. But you're so hungry. Turn these stones into bread. But Jesus, who's always listening to the Father, hears the Father say that he should continue his fast and the word comes to him and so he quotes scripture and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father's mouth. And so the devil tries again, takes him to the, in a vision to the top of the temple, perhaps actually to the top of the temple, And he says, now listen, Jesus, if you really want people to follow you, 
and know that you're the son of God. You just need to do something supernatural. Why don't you throw yourself down from the temple here? Because the word of God says the angels will lift you up and not one of your feet feet will be dashed against the stone. But Jesus is listening to the Father. And he says, the word of God says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So the devil tries one more time and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. The whole world. And he says, I'll give this to you, Jesus. Just think for a moment what that means. I'll give this world to you, Jesus. He came to save the world, yeah? That's why Jesus came. And Satan says, I'll give this to you. No religious wars, no persecution, no church splits, no... um, Difficulty, the whole world is yours. No blood filled salvation, no dying on a cross. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Satan wasn't actually asking to be replaced, to replace God. He just says, You know, I'm worthy of honour and glory. Worship me alongside of God. But Jesus knew much better. He knew his father. And he said, get away from me, Satan. The word of God says, worship the Lord your God and him only. And so Satan leaves, he gets sent away. But the Bible tells us that he only left until a more opportune time. That was not the only temptation that Jesus faced, but the one that we have recorded for. And so here, in Hebrews, we're told Jesus empathises with us. He knows what temptation feels like. We often forget, because we focus on the fact that Jesus is sinless and he's the Son of God, we forget what it costs Jesus to be a man, a human being. He sympathises with us and empathises with us in our weakness and our sin and our temptation because he too experienced temptation, which is actually the desire to go against the will of God. But of course, he was always without sin. So, let us approach God's throne of grace, verse 16, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus, who identifies with us, who has lived through the types of things that we live through and worse, sits on the throne of grace, the throne where we receive undeserved favour. That's what grace is, undeserved favour. Beside our Heavenly Father, And there is no obstacle between us. Our sin is atoned. It is paid for. We have just celebrated communion and remembered the cost to Jesus upon the cross where he said it is finished, it is done. So we always have the throne of grace to come to where we can receive mercy, grace, help, rest, strength, 
healing in our time of need. There's nothing to stop us approaching Jesus and God Almighty because we are family. We call Jesus brother as well as Lord. We call God Daddy as well as Eternal Father. The only thing that stops us is our confidence. So then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So there is nothing that actually separates us from God. Jesus made the way free for us to come to him at all times. The only thing that stops us is whatever's going on inside of us. Our confidence. Well, the writer to the Hebrew goes on and he says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going stray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why this is the human priest has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was, in the same way. So Jesus was called as the priest, a high priest by God. And like the Jewish priests, he mediates between the people and God. He is able to deal gently with us when we are ignorant or going astray because he himself has been subject to weakness, not to sin. But Jesus was a man with a human body. He got tired, hungry, he got sad, he got angry. He knows what the frustrations of life feel like. And so he can deal gently with us. And he didn't just offer our offerings for sin, like the sacrificial system. He offered his own body, his own body as the sacrifice for sin, once for all, dealt with. So the writer goes on, In the same way Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the the Hebrews writers write making two points. Jesus is the son of God, and as the son of God, he is the high priest forever. And he does that by quoting two prophecies from the Psalms. So, Jesus, Son of God, that God appointed as a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who is this guy, Melchizedek? (laughs) He has three verses allotted to him. That's all we know about him from a, a fairly random sort of story about Abraham's life. But he was not just a king this uh, King Melchizedek, he was also a priest like Jesus. So 
a whole chapter in Hebrews is devoted to Melchizedek, and I'm not going to spoil uh, Peter's sermon for you in a couple of weeks, but I will just introduce you to him because it's um, give us some context. It's a fairly interesting story. So Genesis 14, if you want to read it sometime, four kings and their armies go out to fight five kings and their armies. And the five kings win. And they take all the spoil. They gather up people as captives. They take up the food. They get as many possessions as they can grab. And off they go to their part of Canaan. The problem for them was that they took Abraham's nephew Lot with them. And Abraham loved Lot dearly. And so Lot gets, uh, sorry, Abraham gets together his own uh, armed retainers, a total of 300 men and a few allies, and he goes off, and God gives them a great victory. And so he comes back with all the spoil, with all the possessions, and with all the captives. And at one point, they get to Salem, the city where King Melchizedek is the king. And King Melchizedek comes out with wine and bread to refresh Abraham and his army. Um, But because he's also a priest, he blesses Abraham. And this is what he says. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gives Melchizedek 10% of the spoils. 10%, that was the kingly share. And of course it went on to become the priestly share, the tithe. So about a thousand years later, God moves in King David's heart to write a psalm about a coming king. I don't know what David thought he was writing about, but very shortly uh, it became viewed as a messianic psalm. This was the king who would be the Messiah. And in that psalm, God moves David to think of Melchizedek and say, this king will be a king and a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God went to a lot of trouble to make sure we know Jesus is our priest, our high priest forever. We've just read that the role of the priest is to represent people in matters related to God, to mediate between people and God and to present the gifts and offerings. Jesus presented his own body as the perfect sacrifice. He died once for all. He died once for all people. All people all over the world, throughout all time. He died once for all sin, all sin that has ever or will ever be committed. That was his sacrifice paid the price, the blood price, for all people and for all sin. So that whoever has faith, who believes in Jesus as Saviour, can approach the throne of grace with confidence because it has been done. There's no more condemnation. There's no more guilt or shame because we're brought into that close relationship with God as a heavenly father. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And we all have times of need. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, Jesus was certainly a man of prayer. The gospel stories are dotted with Jesus getting up early or staying out all night praying. He prayed in front of his disciples so that they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he taught them the Lord's Prayer that starts, Our Father. Frequently, Jesus tells his hearers that the words he uses and the works that he does, he's already heard and seen from God in prayer. Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed for the people that he was being sent to. And he's still praying for us. You might like to look this one up in your Bibles. I don't have a slide for it, but there's a Bible in the pew. If we look up Romans chapter 8, I just want to bring something clear about who we are now in God and what Jesus is doing for us. So Romans chapter 8 verse 33 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Romans 8 verse 33. It is God who justifies. Usually if we justify ourselves... We're making excuses for what we've done or maybe we want to give people the reason for what we've done to, to either you know, make it seem more important or right. That's justifying ourselves. When God justifies our sin, he looks at Jesus. He sent Jesus to pay the penalty that was our penalty to pay the sin. And so when God looks at us, he justifies our sin through Jesus. It goes on in verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one condemns us. No one important anyway. God certainly doesn't. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? How many times have you heard God judges us? Scripture tells us God justifies us. There is a judgment coming. And in that judgment, people will be judged on matters of faith. Did they believe in Jesus and follow him? Or not. That's the judgment. And for those that have followed Jesus and been faithful, there will be reward. So when you are judged before the throne in heaven, it will be to receive your reward if you're a person of faith. 
So when we go back, though, to our text, most commentators think this passage refers specifically to Jesus' prayers for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that night, after they'd had the Last Supper together, he goes with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, I'm really struggling here. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. To the point of death. Please pray for me. And Jesus goes a little further on his own and he falls on his face and he starts to pray. And this is what he prays. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, as you will. You know, in praying like that, Jesus was saying suffering is not okay. Suffering is not good. Suffering is painful. But sometimes suffering is allowed by God and Jesus was prepared to do God's will in all things. The disciples had been continually warned that Jesus was going to suffer and to die. They just didn't get it. How could Jesus bring in the kingdom of God if he died? How could Jesus be crowned the king in Israel if he died? Of course, Jesus didn't come just to be crowned king of Israel, which never happened. He came to be crowned king of the whole world. And for that, he needed the crown of thorns. The disciples didn't know, they didn't understand. But this is what Jesus told his disciples that he was going to uh, be delivered to the religious priests and he would suffer at their hands. This is all things Jesus knew at the Garden of Gethsemane. That he would then be handed over to the Romans. He would be mocked, he would be flogged, he would be crucified, he would die and be buried. He knew all these things. The disciples heard them but didn't understand. They remembered later that he had said these things. But here's Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane and it's crunch time. It's tomorrow that these things happen. No wonder he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he prays, my father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But if not, your will be done. We know that at this point he goes back to the disciples and he says, Guys, you fell asleep. I need you to pray for me. And we know from Luke's Gospel that an angel came at this point and strengthened him. And so Jesus' prayer changes and he says this. He says, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You know, I just love that Jesus is being honest with God, honest with his disciples. This is so hard, Father, he says. Who knew it was going to be this painful, this sad? He admits his need to his disciples to pray for him, but he's not asking God for an out or refusing to go on. But in reverent submission, 
He is obedient. All of us face times of suffering. Our great high priest stands with us and intercedes with us as one who has gone on a similar journey. Throughout his ministry, Jesus demonstrated that God's will was to end suffering and to bring healing. But when our prayers are not being answered, are we prepared to pray, Father, if it is possible, may this suffering finish and pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was saved from death in answer to his prayers at the resurrection. He learned obedience from suffering. In other words, he learned more about identifying with human beings in suffering. He became perfect in that sense as a human being, identifying with humanity. In reverent submission to the Father, he paid the blood price that buys every person of faith back from sin and the penalty of death so that we receive the life that does not perish, that never ends. Jesus knew in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that he had come to pay the ransom for the whole world. And as he was strengthened through that process of prayer, that closeness that he had with the Father, he became ready for what was to come. Because later on in Hebrews it tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. His joy was in becoming the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So, what do we base our confidence on? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, our confidence is not how we feel about God. We can't put confidence in that because our feelings are going to change depending on the situations and the circumstances of our life. But our confidence can be in Jesus who finished the work on the cross, who knows what it is to be human, who knows how to empathise with us, whatever we're going through. How are you going thinking about if there's something between you and God? As I said before, between God and us, there is just freedom because God looks at people of faith in a different way as he looks at those who don't have faith. He sees us as children that he delights in. He is pleased with faith. That means he's pleased with us for having faith. He justifies us in our weaknesses and in our sins because he sees Jesus. Jesus beside us. Our faith in Jesus. doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to deal with our sin. He uses the consequences of life often for us to know the consequences of sin 
But as we draw close to God, we also get a heart for holiness. Jesus makes us holy and we don't want to sin. So, is Jesus ever angry with us? Is God angry with us? Is God disappointed with us? These are things I hear a lot. We disappoint ourselves. We disappoint each other. In fact, God is expectant that we will come back to him. Jesus expectantly waits for those who believe in him to approach his throne of grace, to receive what we need, the life of faith. And God our Father also waits expectantly. God's not angry with us for approaching his throne. We're coming in the company of Jesus. God is pleased with faith. God is pleased with us. Because we do respond. He delights in us. He rejoices over us with singing, scripture tells us. He comforts us with song. So as we go into a time of prayer, what I'd like you to do is to think about whatever it is that you may be thought of that was an obstacle between you and God at the moment. And as we pray, I would just like you to approach that throne of grace and put your obstacle down. Put it down at the feet of Jesus. Because where is the throne? Is it in some mystical place in heaven somewhere? I think there probably is a throne there. But there's also a throne within us. We either sit on that throne ourselves and we drive our lives ourselves or we say, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. I reserve the throne and the final say about what life is like to you. The Holy Spirit is in us. God, Father, God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit with us. And the throne is there in us too. So, Going to the throne is just a thought away. Just a thought away. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you. I've actually been a bit blown away with understanding more about how human you are. How much you identify with us. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living a very ordinary life in some respects amongst ordinary people but doing all the wonderful things that you did through the power of God to show us the love of God. We come to you right now. Thank you that you are right here with us. You don't go anywhere ever. But sometimes what we need to do is turn around and go back to you, to repent, to confess what we've done. 
thank you that we have mountaintop experiences where we're just so aware that you are always blessing us and caring for us. But Lord, we don't always have happy times in our lives. But we can bring those things to you. The bad things that have happened to us. The bad circumstances we find ourselves in. Our griefs and our sufferings to one who knows what it feels like. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price for all of those things and that what we receive from your hand right now and every day and always is mercy and love, forgiveness, cleansing, strengthening and rest. Mighty God. Amen.